Welcome to the Flow State Performance Podcast. Created for those committed to mastery and success. Coming to you from Manly, Australia, we break down the science and philosophy of optimal performance so you can unleash your potential. Welcome to the Flow State Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Jiro Taylor. And on today's episode, I am talking to Dr. Judson Brewer. Judson is a thought leader in the science of self-mastery. He's an adjunct professor at, the, uh, at Yale University, and he also works at the Center of Mindfulness at UMass, and he also has a research position at MIT. So he's basically a bit of a badass when it comes to this uh, convergence of psychology, psychiatry, neuroscience with meditation, flow states, and contemplative practices. He's right in there. That's his playground. Um, obviously a super interesting guy to talk to. The other cool thing is that Judson is a mountain biker. Um, this is his, his way of experiencing flow state. So in this conversation, we get real deep into how technology is converging with meditation, what the future might look like in terms of technology and meditation, how it's helping, what meditation does for addiction, and really the similarities and the crossovers between, between flow states and meditation. I think you'll find it a super interesting chat. He's a great guy. Enjoy the episode. Welcome to the show, Judson. Thanks for having me. Just give us a little bit of a brief introduction into the work that you're uh, focusing on at the moment. Sure. I'm studying right now two streams of, of research. One is around digital delivery of mindfulness training to help people change behavior. Uh, for example, helping people quit smoking. We're studying in an app and online training called Craving to Quit, and we're about to launch into a program called um, Eat Right Now, where we help people uh, change their stress eating and emotional eating behaviors. And the other line is looking to see if we can develop mental mirrors for people as they're meditating and learning mindfulness training so that we can help them learn uh, to practice in ways where they can see and um, be put in touch with mental states that they might not uh, be as familiar with, even if they're common ones, such as, right. you know, kind of getting caught up in experience. So when you say mental mirrors, is this, is this similar to the kind of biofeedback or um, the kind of uh, the, the Muse devices that, that, that we see on the retail market? This is, well, it's not like those in the sense that, well, it's somewhat like them in the sense that it measures electrical activity from the scalp, but that's about where it ends. Right now we're using a 128 lead EEG array that's only available in research settings with our own uh, custom program software where we can actually give feedback from specific brain regions. Uh, most of the, I don't know anything on the commercial market right now that can give precise source estimated neurofeedback. Okay, so, so you, get, you get to play with the real deal powerful toys and the rest, yes. of, <laughs> the rest of us are basically getting something <laughs> like what we'd give the kids. Okay, I got it. <laughs> so, so it seems to me like you're where psychology, psychiatry, neuroscience meets contemplation and meditation. That's kind of your playground. Yes, it is. Awesome. And... <laughs> How is this a playground? I know it's obviously an emerging field and there's more and more conversations happening around this. When you first entered this, this playground, I imagine it was, it was really emerging, really quite new. 
Yeah, that was almost, I guess, eight years ago or so. And there wasn't, you know, there were just the first studies being published on neuroimaging related to meditation. Uh, I was actually hoping that more would be published so I wouldn't have to do the work. I remember just assuming that somebody had already published that. And then when we looked at the literature, there really wasn't a whole lot. So our first fMRI studies uh, were started around 2008. I think we published our first study in 2011. Uh, and then things took off from there. Mm, and what what have you found when it comes to mindfulness as a treatment for addictions? What have the results been? Well, we found that mindfulness training works as well as gold standard treatment for alcohol and cocaine dependence. And then we found that it was actually two to five times as powerful as gold standard treatment for smoking cessation. Wow. Okay. So pretty effective stuff. Yes, we were pleasantly surprised, especially with our smoking work. <laughs> yeah, wow. And is this, when you say mindfulness training, are you talking about the sort of what has become a kind of like standard eight weeks, like MBSR type program, or, or what sort of time frame are we talking about? The first studies we did with alcohol and cocaine dependence were modeled after MBSR in a we did a modification of a program called Mindfulness-Based Relapse Prevention. The second study that we did, we stripped out all of the relapse prevention components and just focused specifically on mindfulness training and delivered it twice weekly over four weeks. So it was a four-week treatment at that point. Uh, we've since uh, taken all of that to digital platforms where we can take the core trainings and the pieces that were are especially linked to the outcomes and deliver them in 10-minute segments over the course of three weeks or so. Hmm. How do you explain mindfulness to to people, to lay people? Because I guess there's a it's become like a very popular term these days, and I think there's some uh, misconceptions around out there. So how do you define it? Well, I think there's you know a standard working definition that probably a lot of folks have heard that John Kabat-Zinn kind of coined where you know he talks about paying attention on purpose in the present moment non-judgmentally and i think if you look at the aspects of that it's really about bringing a quality of awareness uh, to whatever's happening in a way that's not pushed or pulled by our experience so we're not sucked into it and we're not trying to push it away um, but we're really just you know just in it mm. And is that the definition? Is that is that the way you see it? The way you describe it to people? It depends on the day. <laughs> okay. So talk to me about how you, you you came into this because for me, when I first started uh, meditating, I was actually living in Japan at the time, and I and I stumbled across a, a Zen monastery. And at the time, um, having had a standard upbringing, my my mind was extremely untrained. Um, really like that 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 puppy metaphor. Um, and it was all over the shop, and I found it extremely difficult to, to focus on things, and I was really just going, being tossed, you know, to and forth according to the whims of my, of my thoughts. How did you come across this, uh, I guess, a practice that's rooted in, in East, the Eastern tradition? I was suffering. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. Looking for a way out of my suffering. I had gone through a bad relationship breakup right before starting medical school, was having trouble sleeping probably for the first time in my life. And somehow this, you know, this book by John Kabat-Zinn landed in my lap and I started meditating my first day of medical school. 
And which book was this? Where you um... uh, Full Catastrophe Living was the name. Ah, Full Catastrophe Living. Okay, excellent. And did that change your decisions around your career? Eventually. I was in a, an MD-PhD program studying medicine. I wasn't sure what specialty I would go into, but had plenty of time to figure that out. I was studying uh, immunology because <coughs> I was very interested in how, you know, why we get sick when we get stressed out, basically, um, but from a very molecularly oriented standpoint. So I would knock out genes in specific cell types in developing mice and figure out how, um, you know, how steroids or stress hormones affected the immune system. But throughout my train, you know, my MD, PhD training, I kept practicing more and more and started going on retreats and really learning about how my mind works. And at the end of it, I decided to shift from animal research to doing human research and also shift my or, or go into psychiatry as a profession because I could see very clear links between what the early Buddhist psychologists were talking about in terms of where suffering was coming from and what my patients were talking about. I love the way you just said early Buddhist psychologists. Um, can you just can you just expand on that? Because a lot of people see Buddhism, you know, as a religion, and there's not going to be psychologists there. There's going to be theologists there. Um, what do you mean by Buddhist psychologists? Well, I guess you know I would ask: Was the Buddha a Buddhist? Uh, I think he was a guy that was trying to figure out where suffering was come from, coming from. So in that sense, he was taking a very pragmatic approach. Mm. And if you look at his trainings. There's nothing in there about believing anything. It's a very empirically derived process. Mm. When you look at the trainings and the teachings, you know, for example, there's one uh, termed dependent origination, which is basically an early map of of operant conditioning. So mm. he's really figuring out um, how our minds work more than forming a religion. Absolutely, absolutely. I think it, that's uh, something that, yeah, people, more people should be aware of. It really does seem to be like perhaps that the man's earliest attempt at creating a, a science of the mind. That's right. Uh, that, that's how I see it. So, so talk to me about that because you obviously had a scientific inclination, and a lot of the, the energy around meditation has a esoteric flavor to it. Um, did you struggle at any point in your early days of meditation with balancing out the, the esoteric nature against your scientific leaning? I'm sure I did. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, there's a lot written about meditation, tons of books. Uh, so I, you know, it was a while ago, it was about 20 years ago now, so I can't remember the details, but I'm sure the answer was yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. I was interviewing a neuroscientist called Arne Dietrich uh, on the show um, a couple of months ago, and we really were, were, were getting deep into the, the topic of consciousness, uh, the science of consciousness, and really talking about where consciousness exists and what, what the limits of that are. And his view was, was very mechanistic, that consciousness uh, exists within the brain and only within the brain. Um, can I ask your take on that? Uh, you know, it's a, it's a good question, but not one that I'm particularly interested in, to be honest. So I couldn't give you... I, I actually 
don't have much of an answer for that. I'm, I'm, people have debated this for many, many years, if not centuries. And from a pragmatic standpoint, I'm a pragmatist as well. Yeah. I don't know how helpful it is to figure out exactly where consciousness comes from. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's a really interesting point. There's a lot of people saying this, a lot of people on the other side of the fence, and maybe one day we'll never know, and maybe we're not meant to know, and maybe there's no point in knowing, you know? So Yeah, one, one thing I would say is, you know, looking, again, following the early Buddhist teachings, um, when we get attached to views, one thing is pretty clear that that leads to suffering. So, you know, unless there's a pragmatic aspect to figuring this out, um, I think there's good <laughs> In, in not getting too caught up in these types of debates. Yeah, I think that's great advice, man. That's great advice. And I, I'm going to take that on board myself um, because there's a lot of debate out there. And, and often people take a very entrenched position. But in fact, that position is completely unprovable. And it's, it's often based on, on a hunch or some sort of life experience. And at the end of the day, we might never be able to prove some things, right? That's the way I see it. So, so why, so why be attached to it? Talk, talk to me about uh, f- flow states in in your life, Judson. Um, how do you, how do you experience um, flow? I experience it when I get out of my own way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so, some uh, some simple ways that I've experienced it are, you know, mountain biking, for example, uh, when there's you know, the conditions are set up so that I'm kind of, I don't have time to pay attention to myself. And, you know, I think some of uh, Mihai Csikszentmihalyi's um, descriptions of flow are very helpful for, uh, for kind of outlining or framing it in terms of, you know, it's, it's a quality where we're not there. It's selfless, it's timeless, it's effortless, you know, those types of things. Mm -hmm. And, that's happened for me when, you know, I'm playing music, when I'm mountain biking, uh, sometimes when I'm just going about doing things in the day. Mm. Have you found that there's a correlation between your meditation practice and your ability to be in flow? Yes, a direct correlation. I mean, meditation is about learning to get out of your own way. Mm. So everything, you know, in a simplistic view, I would say meditation is, is a way to train people to get into flow because it moves people into this non-dual framework, which I would say is a, at least my definition of flow. Yeah, absolutely. I think that uh, for me, when, when we talk about flow states at the Flow State Collective, it's, well, mindfulness meditation, awareness training is sort of like the complete foundation of everything and um, for us, but not for everybody. Like there's a whole flow hacking movement out there um which is sort of about adding external stimulus or increasing the risk or adding things to to daily life in order to elicit a state whereas i and i think you see it quite the opposite as flow being what happens when we take things away like we take our ego we take our sense of self away um what do you feel about this whole flow hacking movement that's going on? Well, it's, I haven't followed it that carefully, but the most prominent examples that I've seen are the ones, and I, I was reading a book, uh, what is it, The Making of Superman or something like that, where they talk about all these extreme athletes 
Yeah. And in that book, the author dedicated an entire chapter to how many people had died even since he'd written, started writing the book. So, you know, in terms of risk benefit analysis, you know, if you need to kind of put yourself in a life or death situation to, uh, to achieve a flow state, you know, I, I would say that there are probably less risky ways to do that. Um, so, you know, to each their own, if somebody you know prefers to do it that way, great. Um, or I, I hope they know, <laughs> I hope they think it's <laughs> I hope they have good health insurance. <laughs> right, exactly. So, you know, the, the, the risks to meditation versus the risk to, you know, jumping off of a, or base jumping or something like that are much, are much lower. And I would say, you know, with practice, you can actually learn to create the conditions without needing to go jumping off of a cliff or mountain biking down some very treacherous uh, terrain. Yeah. But there is a distinction between flow states and meditation, or there's a couple. I think, I think for me, one is that flow is almost the, the accidental side effect of putting yourself in a certain situation or doing things a certain way, whereas meditation seems to be more intentional. Well, we're, it is intentional. We're not, it's not the, the state that occurs when we're hurtling down a, a single track. Um, are there any other differentials that you spot between a flow state and a meditative state in terms of that quality of awareness? No, I don't, I don't think so. I think the two really, they start to converge at that, at that place where you're in flow. Hmm. Interesting. Cause a, a couple of people I've spoken to have, have, uh, theorized that flow is a state of single minded or, um, focused awareness. Whereas meditation is a state of open awareness. And the example they used was when you're in a state of flow, like let's just say you're on your mountain bike and you're going down single track at high speed, you might not hear the birds or you might not see what's in your peripheral vision. Um, some aspects of your awareness might be limited in order to deepen your focus on what you need to do to survive or to thrive. Do you, is that, is that, is that, uh, does that fit with your experience? Well, I think meditative states can also have focus as well. So it just depends on what you're doing. And I think my sense is, and I, you know, I could absolutely be wrong here. Uh, I'm thinking about when there's single pointed concentration, even then there can often still be a sense of uh, some do, or even if it's very minimal and in flow states, there, it can be just a wide open awareness or it can be a more narrowed focus. I'm thinking about, you know, when I was trail running and mm. you know, running down a trail specifically, there was a, like you're saying, I may not have heard certain birds chirping, mm. but it was certainly moving at a, <laughs> at a pace that wouldn't probably allow that so much. So there was, there was some focus, but at the same time, there was a, a more broadened awareness. Now, if I'd carried that, you know, beyond that trail running, there are times when I'm in flow where there's just a wide open awareness of whatever's arising. So I, I'm wondering if the aperture narrows or broadens as the conditions 
dictate more so than flow being defined as a broad or a narrow state. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. I think you're probably absolutely right. There's There's been times where I've been surfing where, you know, I'm paddling for a wave and, and, and all my friends are kind of hooting me on and uh, yelling at me and stuff. And I, I, I literally cannot hear them. But there's been other times where I've been acutely, I've been riding the wave at high speed and I've been acutely aware of the color of the coral that's passing underneath me as I surf over it. Um, you know, things that I normally would not be aware of. So I think you're right. It's probably a varying, a varying state of that aperture of awareness. That's interesting. Yeah. What, yeah. Um, what, can we talk about um, technology and meditation? Because it fascinates me. It's obviously a, traditionally a very extremely low-tech <laughs> practice. Um, how do you see um, technology converging with meditation in, a, in, a, in the most helpful way possible for humanity? Well, I can see several, and there are probably others, other ways that these could converge as well. As we start to learn how the mind and the body work, I think that you know those types of measurements will help provide feedback because humans learn best through feedback. Uh, you know, we're feedback machines. Mm-hmm. Uh, but like most other animals. And so if you can provide some type of precise feedback for a specific state or condition, you can learn, you know, you can learn that much more quickly and efficiently than if you didn't have feedback. Uh, so I think providing feedback from our, from um, specific physical and mental states can be very, very helpful. And some of it being simply just pointing out, not necessarily like, unconscious ones, but just helping to point us toward our own experience that we may not have particularly paid attention to previously, or where we have taken something for granted. So for example, there's this saying, uh, there was, I think this was a teacher, Saida Upandita, who said, people mistake excitement for happiness. Hmm. And so we can be subtly attached to excited states or even think that excitement is the way to go and train ourselves to move into an excited state. Whereas with neurofeedback, for example, we can point to excitement and say, hey, it might be worth really examining that state in your experience. So not necessarily changing the state, but just providing a a pointer that says, hey, pay attention to this, pay attention to this aspect of your experience where we might not have noticed it before. Hmm. That's interesting. So do you find that in, has your practice, has your, has your routine and your meditation practice uh, modified according to technological advances or has it stayed quite old school? It's, I mean, some of the technology, technology has helped kind of be a signpost along the way, kind of a check, you know, like, okay, that, you know, when I'm in a med- certain you know, state or noticing something, then this technology has is, is kind of been consistent with that. So I wouldn't say that it has altered it per se, uh, but also, you know, I've been practicing for a while and I think I've developed at least some level of, of my own bodily awareness feedback. And in that sense, I'm, you know, I've kind of ta- I'm tapped into more 
more of you know what does it feel like to suffer on more subtle levels and in that sense i don't know any technology that is um that is better than that right now but it's it's pretty consistent with what my experience is yeah okay excellent so what do you think is is going to change in the next five to ten years um in terms of uh meditation tools i noticed that people like uh i heard something about 40 years of zen a program in california that dave asprey was talking about where you go for a very you basically book in for like eight sessions and it's very intense uh, neurofeedback type training. Um, do you think that these things, these sorts of programs are going to become more, more prevalent? Yes, I think so. I, I, mean, I think as the technology improves and as our understanding of neuroscience improves, those two will blend to make better and more accurate neurofeedback devices where we can really help people see what their experience is. I don't see it I'm sure people are working on this, but this isn't, I'm not sure that I would advocate for this where, you know, it's not necessarily going to do the work for you, but it can help point you to in the direction or, or point to what you might be doing that's, that's um, helpful or not helpful. And in that sense, you know, it's like we are, you know, one analogy that I've heard is if you're holding onto a hot coal and you don't realize that it's burning you, as soon as somebody points it out, you drop the hot coal. And in that sense, I think these technologies can help point out experience that is already in our awareness or can be brought into our conscious awareness quickly. And in that sense, helps helps through that process. Uh, I'm mm. sure people are developing tools. Somebody said, you know, could I just get a, a thing that could zap my posterior cingulate cortex? Yeah. You know, and I'm sure eventually people will be able to do these types of things and on a deep brain level. But I don't know if that if I don't know what the results of something like that would be, because ultimately it's I find it helpful to learn the specific conditions so that we can recreate these conditions on our own rather than having something external create them for us. Yes, 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 absolutely. What do you think about creating uh, or being very deliberate about, about our environment? Um, I was speaking to a guy last week who you know, uses a lot of sounds, uh, binaural beats, isochronic tones, and then he started moving into to smells, um, and, then, and then he started creating different lighting to evoke a different mental state um, when, if he was trying to be creative or if he was trying to just get stuff done, like pay the bills. And he'd have a different kind of office setup um, to evoke a different kind of state. Um, have you looked into any of, any of those sorts of things? We have not. Do you think that there could be validity? I don't know. Um. <laughs> <laughs> I really don't know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, one, one thing that we do know is that's reproducible is that, um, you know, the, the placebo effect is very strong and we're really good at associative learning as humans. Mm -hmm. So if you are in, I'm not saying this is the case for these people, but, um, you know, if you cre if you say, okay, red is going to be my concentration time, I'm just making this up. Yeah. And we do that, then we're, you know, we're more likely to condition ourselves just like any lab rat uh, to be more focused at those times purely through just conditioning. So, you know, being able to differentiate 
what is actually physiologic from an external perspective where it's uh, it's actually inducing it versus our own mental states uh, associating it is is going to be re- the key there. And I have to say the mind is probably ex- much more powerful than we imagine, but the placebo effect is just one example of it. Mm, that's interesting. Yeah, I guess when I think about things like smells and sounds and um, yeah, just the environment, I, I think about, I guess, temples and incense and bells and, you know, the different kind of mood that is evoked within yourself when you go into a sacred space. Um, yeah. Maybe that is placebo effect or maybe those, maybe those guys are really onto something that we're just not, not clued into yet. Yeah. yeah, it's a really good question. And so I think, you know, it'd be really interesting as, as we, as we study those things to see, yeah. you know, there could be some collective something there that we don't even know how to measure yet. That's right. That's right. Fascinating. So Judson, can you tell us a little bit about your rituals uh, or, your, or your sort of daily practice? Because um, a lot of our listeners are uh, either new to meditation or they don't have a meditation practice. But I think everybody around the world or certainly in our culture is tuning into the idea that a ritual, especially around the morning time, first thing in the morning or possibly in the evening as well, can be a very powerful way for us um, to be more settled, more happy, more productive, operate at a higher level of performance. Are, are there any rituals in your life? Well, it's funny you mentioned rituals because I, that makes me think back to our, you know, what we were just talking about in terms of how rituals can help evoke certain states based on them being conditioned from doing those rituals previously. So yeah. uh, do I have specific rituals you know, in the morning, I, uh, whenever I can, uh, my wife and I meditate together, and we have a, you know, meditation room, and so there, you know, and all that's associated with that. And it's funny that our meditation room kind of smells like one of the walking meditation rooms at a retreat center that I used to do month-long retreat at, mm. and so. We, just walking in there, um, you know, can evoke that memory. Yeah. Uh, which is interesting in itself. It is. But I, yeah. So I would say, you know, my own, I don't have anything elaborate. Uh, I, really, <laughs> for me, it comes down to in any moment that I can remember is just to check in to see if I'm, you know, if I'm taking anything personally, for lack of a better way of saying it, you know, if I'm getting in my own way yeah. and then just paying attention to that. Uh, so I would say that's a, a momentary, quote unquote, ritual or procedure or remembering. Yeah, absolutely. It helps me then. Well, that's a, that's a minute to minute, second to second ritual, isn't it? Of just check, checking in. And, I guess uh, so. Yeah, and that's one of the things about mindfulness training that I think is often overlooked. Like, what what is the minute-to-minute effect of it? And um, one thing I was chatting about with a friend last week was this increased ability to observe a thought and either modify it or change it or let it vanish before this thought is fully developed. Um, And that's a pretty powerful thing when you think about it, isn't it? Absolutely. It's really powerful. So 
just to uh, just to wrap up, I've got a question from a listener. He, he I, I let my uh, listeners know that I was going to have a chat with you and had a few questions come in. He had a question about perfectionism. Um, he's obviously a perfectionist, and this perfectionism really uh, stands in the way of him uh, and flow states. And he wondered whether there was anything, uh, any advice you could give him in terms of how to deal with this. <laughs> That's a great question. And, you know, one thing that I would say is just notice what you get from having perfectionistic tendencies. So if you, you know, I'm just imagining what it feels like for myself if I want something to be perfect, I kind of clench or get contracted around it and try to force it. And that, that feeling or that act of contracting it is the opposite of movement into flow. So if you think about just paying attention to a binary where it's either contracting or expanding at the extreme end of expanding is flow. And so we can be moving in any one direction, either contracting or expanding at any moment in time. So I would say if, if he's noticing a tendency or a thought around being perfectionistic, just note, you know, like drop into his body to see if he's contracting mm. his or her to see if they're, if he or she is contracting. And at that point, just see what happens when he or she brings awareness to it. Mm, great advice. Great advice, Judson. Well, maybe I'll have to um, give you a call next year. If we, we, we Basically, we set up these adventures where we go mountain biking or we go surfing, we go snowboarding, and we also practice meditation in the morning and in the evenings. And the idea is basically to explore an altered state while we're on the cushion or on the floor and also when we're on the trail or riding waves. And just to, you know, so that we can uh, let these experiences filter into our consciousness and so that they can flavor the rest of our existence. Um, but it'll be great to have you on one of those, man. It'll be great to ride the, uh, get on a bike with you. Sign me up. <laughs> I will do. I will do. Thank you so much for your time, man. I really, really appreciate your wisdom. And I know that our viewers will, will get a lot out of, uh, listening to the work that you're, that you're, um, that you're focused on and, and how they can blend, um, technology with their practice. And really just, I think the, the overall message from this is just really just, to have a practice, to develop a practice, and the, the enduring power of, of meditation for our modern lives. Is there anything else you'd like to say before we wrap up? Uh, I, would, I would just say enjoy the practice because that enjoyment quality helps quite a bit, as I'm sure many of your listeners know, but it's, sometimes we forget. Awesome. Thanks, man. Enjoy the practice, guys. And uh, with that, we'll wrap it up. Thank you so much for your time, Judson. My pleasure. All right. Take care. Well, guys, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Dr. Judson Brewer. He's a super interesting guy, and I love chatting with people who really blend the science and the theory of meditation, mindfulness, flow states, peak performance with a personal practice that involves some sort of playing and adventure. And um, after the call ended, I actually, got a, I actually had a five-minute chat with Judson, which I wish I'd recorded. But we got stuck into mountain biking and why and how we both feel like mountain biking is one of the most amazing ways to experience flow states. There's something about uh, being on a bike and being, um, you know, the length of a trail can be the length of a flow experience. And some of my longest flow state experiences have been on a bike. Um, so, yeah, we talk a lot about that. And I really hope that he can come along to one of our adventures soon. So... The key takeaways from that for me 
is that technology can be blended into a meditation practice. Um, it really can. And I think the next few years is going to be super interesting in terms of the stuff that's coming out. Some of the devices, um, I've just ordered a device from Emotive, um, which is a neural feedback device, um, an EEG device. Um, and there's going to be more and more things coming up. Um, and it's really going to help to push meditation and alter states of consciousness forward. Judson and I both chatted about, after the show, about how we've both got a shared vision of a mat of, of really guiding a lot of people to experience their original state. Meditation and flow states is all about what is your original state below the conditioning, below the programming, below the thoughts and the fears. And that's what I'm driven. That's my sense of purpose. And I just wanted to talk to you guys about a program which I'm launching on January the 29th. It's the Flow State Freedom Formula. It's a super powerful course. It's basically the condensation of much of my 15 years of practice. The thing is, a lot of people in our culture try and get peak performance and they try and go for the mindset, they try and hack flow, they try and do all these sorts of things to try and be a peak performer. But it's like a tree with no roots. It's very unstable. It's like building a house on sand. You have to have the foundation of self-knowledge and self-awareness. So the flow state freedom formula is a six-week program that's designed to build this amazingly solid foundation of self-knowledge and self-awareness, utilizing the best practices that I've come across from Eastern philosophy and blending them into modern life. So I know that we're not monks, and, we know, and I know we don't live in Japan or Asia or Thailand, and I know we're not Buddhist. I'm a modern man. I'm all about peak performance. So this course is really going to be consumable and powerful for those guys out there and girls who are interested in knowing more about who the hell they are and what their purpose is in life and how they can express this through their relationships, through their business, through their hobbies and all that sort of stuff. So jump on to the Flow State Collective website, flowstatecollective.com, and you'll see lots of stuff about the Flow State Freedom Formula. There's very limited spots, guys, so get in there fast. Okay, guys, until next time, keep it flowy. See ya. Thanks for listening to the Flow State Performance Podcast. Check us out at www.flowstateperformance.com for more inspiration to unleash your potential.